All right, welcome back to another episode of Royals Review Radio. My name is Alex Duvall. I'm the host of this thing. Uh, Jeremy couldn't join me tonight, my co-host. Um, so tonight I am joined by a very, very special guest. I'm, I'm really excited to have him on. Is uh, Joel Goldberg of what is now Bally Sports KC. Joel, I cannot thank you enough for joining me tonight. I know the, the lockout has made baseball news a little bit slow, but I appreciate you coming on. I'm, I'm really excited to, to talk about the Royals and then a little bit about the, the media side of, of baseball. So thanks for joining me tonight. That's good to be with you, Alex. And, you know, nice to see you sort of in person and to be able to talk to you versus the, the Twitter world that, that I think I know you from. And uh, not, not I think, I, that, that's how I know you. I know you from the Twitter world. So uh, more than anything and, and the work that you do, obviously, um, over there, but, um, it's good to be with you and, you know, it's, it's slow, obviously with the lockout, but it's never really slow because, because we never stop thinking about it. No, absolutely not. And I noticed, actually I saw in, was it a Lee Summit newspaper that you're, that you're doing some speaking here coming up? Yeah, I, that's what I do. I, not everybody knows that in the baseball world, but I, I do motivational type of speaking, pretty much all year long, more so in the off season where I can pretty much pick and choose dates versus in season where it's got to fit around the baseball schedule. So a lot of, a lot of talking about leadership culture, tying back to baseball. And so uh, this is uh, a big event in Lee Summit. It's the mayor's character breakfast, which is right up my alley in terms of the type of things that I talk about. And I think it's, you know, something like five, 600 people, leaders and, and people in the community, which is really cool. Well, you work for an organization that is just gushing with leadership. And um, one of the things I wanted to, to ask you about tonight, and it's interesting we kind of get started on this, is, is an organization run by Dayton Moore. Um, you can see it on the broadcast, I think. And, and I don't know how many of your guys' broadcasts you end up going back and watching. And, and, I, and I, can, I can imagine it's hard from your point of view to, to maybe see it, for like, a, like as fans, as casual fans see it, but the the leadership and just the the character of guys that are on the broadcast, it it reflects the organization well. I think. I mean, from Rex and Ryan and even um, you know Toby Cook and Steve Fiziak, who does some on the radio, and Denny Matthews and yourself, it really reflects the organization. So it's it's really no surprise. I don't think that you um, are able to go do some of those some of those things. Speaking at like a character breakfast, like you said. Um, but what's it like working for an organization that you know, you know, baseball aside, is going to put good people first? Yeah, it's it's unique, and I don't know. It's not; they're not the only ones to do it. I, I mean, I and now I hear this speaking to all types of companies and organizations around the country that that everybody's looking for good culture, and some have it. I mean, some of the best companies just here in Kansas City ooze culture in everything that they do. And it very much reminds me of the Royals. And when I talk to some of their CEOs, and that's one of the fun things about my other world is I, I get to rub elbows with, you know, a lot of these CEOs that are sitting in the front row or, or you know, have the crown seats or the diamond club seats or whatever. And they pay attention to what Dayton Moore does. You know, they they I hear it over and over again. They'll say, you know, I've never met Dayton Moore, but I really love the way he or I saw Dayton Moore speak or I've met Dayton Moore and he is. And so, you know, I, I want to say that that and, and I'd be curious to know the thoughts of, of your audience and maybe there'll be some feedback afterwards. I think that's not everything, at least to a fan, because in the end, what does a fan want more than anything they want? They want to win. And so. You know, I, I think that that's ultimately what they're measured by. I want to say that there's something different here in this part of the country where that culture, good guys matters. I know we'll have plenty of fans, those that watch us, those that listen to you or read you, that are going to say, I don't care about that. I just want this team to win and the heck with it. If it's bad guys, it's bad guys. But I think for the most part, people in this town, in this region, are proud of the fact. I mean, look at the way they fell in love with that 2015 team. They fell in love with that 2015 and 14 uh, team, and, and, and they didn't just fall in love with them in 2014 and 15. They fell in love with them as they got to know Eric Hosmer, as they got to know Mike Moustakis and Danny Duffy and on and on. 
Uh, it helps when you win, but there was a legitimate bond in this community that, you know, had they not won the way they did, it wouldn't be what it is, but you could feel that it was still there. So I think there's a lot of pride in that. And quite frankly, it's molded who I am, not so much as a person. I, I, I think I'm the, you know, I am who I am. I, you know, I was raised by good parents and then had great influences along the way. But I know that when I came here in 2008 and I got to know Dayton a little bit and then his staff and started seeing the way they were operating early on, you know, before the culture had been built here, it really shaped the way I go about things. It shaped the messages that I share with organizations having been able to ride shotgun to see the way they built this. And the last point on this, or, or you know, we'll move on to whatever the next question is, is I tell people all the time when they say, you know, over the last few years, and I know you get this too, how long till the Royals are back? How long till the Royals are back? And, and, and a lot of times you have better answers to that than me because you're following the minor leagues a lot more than I am. But what I do tell people is that they're coming back because they're, they're growing this talent um, and, and developing talent, but they've never lost their culture. And so when I got here in 08, there was no culture. The first time I met Dave Moore, I said, what are you trying to do? And this was actually in 07 when I was working in St. Louis and we were here. Uh, I was here with the Cardinals. And I actually pulled Dave Moore aside, introduced myself because I wanted a soundbite about Adam Wainwright since I was you know, with the Cardinals at that point. Didn't grow up there, by the way, and uh, which seems to matter. And, and you know, Dayton had drafted Adam Wainwright. I mean, they, they, to this day, they have a very close relationship. And... I remember getting to know him, getting that soundbite, and then saying, hey, what are you trying to do? And he said, I'm trying to build a winning culture, not just in the locker room, not just in the clubhouse, with the ticket takers, with the executives, with the custodians, with the security guards, with the, you know, with the, with the parking lot attendants, with the fans, everywhere. And that's what he built. And so what I would say is that that hasn't left. They, they, they went down because they lost a lot of talent, but their identity and who this organization is hasn't changed at all. I'm glad you mentioned that because I wanted to ask you about the way that they operate with their players and specifically when it comes to like Salvador Perez, I think is the, is the, the, the best example that anybody could give for how Dayton treats his players. Didn't have to extend him when they gave him the first extension, probably could have waited for the second extension that they gave and made him the highest paid player in organization's history. Um, but Salvador Perez, because there was a certain, and, and I don't know how much you see of this, but there's a certain group of people on social media that in probably 2018, 2019 were on the trade Salvador Perez train. And the, what I tried in my best, and then I was, you know, in the majority. So it's not like I was like, you know, the lone man that was trying not to trade Salvi, but the best I could explain it was the value that he provides to the organization is so much greater than anything you could ever get in return for him. Now, again, I was not I was not necessarily the minority in that group, but when it comes to Salvador Perez and the way that Dayton Moore has treated him and the way that the Royals have treated him and the way that he's treated the Royals and Royals fans, can you describe what a player like that, and, and I think Whit Merrifield is a good example of this too, what a player like that means to an organization off the field? Because we talk about leadership, we talk about, um, being that guy in the clubhouse, not just on the field, but you see it every day. So help Royals fans who may have been on that train of maybe the best way to win again is to trade Salvi. What does that look like in the clubhouse? Because the Royals have made it very clear that they prioritize that. Well, and, you know, you could go back and have the same discussion with the group that Dayton hung on to. You know, the 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 – Lorenzo Keynes and the Eric Hosmers and, and, and eventually Mike Moustakis. And there was obviously a great argument to have traded them. And maybe that would have sped things up a little bit. But, but I've heard Dayton say before that it, he, he, he is just more of a relational guy than a transactional guy. So if you're looking for a GM that, you know, wants to play rotisserie baseball, fantasy football, He's probably not your guy, you know, go to San Diego or, or, or fill in the blank. I mean, go to someone that, that, that just mixes it up all the time. And is that a fault of his? He would say that it can be. I've heard him say that, you know, if there's a fault of mine, um, maybe I'm too relational, but that's who I am. So he's authentic, 
And, and it does matter to the players. I mean, look, players are like fans in this standpoint. If they feel like they need another piece, they want that piece. If they feel like their fill-in-the-blank pitching isn't what it should be, they want somebody else. They're competitive. They see it. Uh, they're, of course, publicly always going to back their teammates. But you'll hear rumblings every now and then about, boy, we need more of this, we need more of that. But for the most part, they also understand, especially the guys that, that are a little bit more mature, that have been around longer, that this is a little bit different here. I mean, look at look at the White Sox. and. And there are a number of teams, too. I mean, I always love messing with Yankees fans because it's so easy when, you know, I, I say something like, how many championships have the Royals and Yankees combined to win in the last 20 years? And then the media's like, well, how many championships do you have? I'm like, I, I don't care. And I, I don't really even care about the point that I'm making uh, other than the fact that it's not that easy to win a championship. But it seems to me that a lot of these teams that just go out there and buy whatever the shiniest object is, uh, satisfies their fan base uh, until they don't win. And I, I think it's interesting, too, that those shiny objects, every year in the offseason, it's obviously more quiet right now, but when the hot stove is kicking in most years, where does the, the national media go? And I'm not blaming them for it because, you know, you go where the money's spent. You go where the, the big news is. So – Whoever the Yankees go and buy, nobody's going to beat them. And San Diego goes out and does everything. And remember the first two or three weeks of the season last year, there, there were some epic games between the Padres and the Dodgers. And, and, I, and I believe the two, they're like, we're going to deal with this all year long. It's going to be amazing. Until the Padres were out of it at the end. And so, you know, I, I, in, in one sense, maybe that's a different discussion because it's not like the Royals were in it. But they're building a foundation. They're building and continuing that identity. And you know, I'll get back to the point that I made before. In the end, they're going to be judged on wins and losses. But I, I, when you talk about the word rebuild, which they've been rebuilding as much as Dayton hates that word, um, and I understand that, it's a mindset, they didn't have to rebuild who they were. They didn't have to start from scratch. They didn't have to come in here and, and, and bring in a new GM. I mean, look at how many teams. I mean, think about this, Alex. Um, before I got here in 08, and I did not grow up in Kansas City, I didn't grow up a Royals fan, but, I mean, God knows I've spent enough time uh, around it for the last 14 years. It's my home. But how many, how many years interval, in intervals was it that they hired a new manager? Pretty much every, what, two to three years, two to four years? In my time here, 14 seasons – We've had three managers. We've had Trey Hillman, Ned Yost, and Mike Matheny. That's it. I, I mean, that's that's crazy. That's that's just not a, a normal a normal thing. So again, I would say that some people might not like that because transactional is more fun, right? You can talk about the moves and you can analyze them. And this is sort of slow and steady wins the race. But you know this because you follow it really well. Part of that slow and steady wins the race is the way they've been changing things at the lower levels, the way they're going about looking at things differently. And I, I sense that they're, they're trying to be on the cutting edge. You know, this organization that for a lot of years was, was, was criticized for not being analytical enough and not doing the things that, that others were doing. And it seems to me now they're starting to do some things that really reflect their identity and where they're going. I agree with that very much. And, and, you know, as the I run a website that's minor league centric and you can tell that the players they draft like MJ Melendez, when they drafted him, he's a second round pick. Um, they bring him in and it was like his first year of pro ball. He gets done and he goes home and he hosts a camp for little kids. Like the, the types of people that the Royals invest in are good people. And I, and I noticed it again this past summer, I was down in Springfield watching the double a team play. And Nick Prado and MJ Melendez have been playing together longer, so their connection is a little bit different. It is one of the sleekest and slyest relationships when because Melendez, the back picks that he makes to Prado, I watch. And, and, and after it happens, I'll rewind the tape and I'll watch it again, and I never see the movement. I never see the call from Prado letting Melendez know or Melendez to Prado. Sometimes it is – they're so good at it, right? But – there was a play 
that Bobby Witt Jr. didn't make. He makes the third out, and coming off the field, Prado is hyping up Bobby Witt Jr. for the play he made. Never said a word about the play he didn't make, or at least that we could tell in the stands. He makes the play, though, to end the inning, and Prado is all about it, hyping him up, congratulating him, high-fiving him. And it's like the leadership these kids instill at 20 and 21 years old is just incredible. And, and I think it is a reflection of how the Royals, like you said, it's not just in their coaches. It's not just in the big league players. It's with every single person that is affiliated with the organization they take care of. They try to build that winning culture with, a culture of leadership. And it is reflective of, of their staff. And like I said, like I mentioned it, on the broadcast even, um, but it goes, it goes deeper than that. So um, like you said, it is every level. It is every single person that is in the organization. And speaking of the minor leagues, there's a, there's a new crop of kids coming. I know f- the fans are excited. As somebody who works on the media side of things, how – and I don't want to say difficult because building relationships is always – has its challenges in and of itself. But how difficult is it in a profession where you have to build a relationship with somebody in order to do your job knowing that tomorrow it is very possible that half of them could be new faces? Yeah, I, it's it's a great question, and uh, by the way, I never commented on it before. But you know, you, you said really nice things about all of us on the broadcast side, and I appreciate that. But it, it's you know that, that's not by accident either. And and I would say that you know those of us that are strictly on the TV side aren't even employed by the Royals. I mean, we might as well be. We're part of the family. We're you know we are in a people. For some reason people like to ask me all the time, like who signs your check? Like who else? Who who asks that to anybody else? You know, in their profession. Um, but you know, does the network sign it? Does the Royal, do the Royal sign it? And, and I said, well, no, well, well, the network signs it. I'm an independent contractor, but the, the network is in, in a major business partnership with the organization. No one has ever told me what I can or can't say, but it, it is my job to, um, to work with everybody. And that includes the players that includes the minor leaguers that you're talking about. And to me, and it, it's interesting because. I've talked to Ryan Lefebvre about this many times. I think his job is a lot harder than mine because he's, you know, got to call 162 games. And he always says my job is harder because we have to come up with material to talk about, especially on the pregame show every single night when it could be the same thing, you know, at times over and over again, when you're in a losing streak or whatever. But to me, my job is easy because of the relationships that you build. So what I tell people all the time is that I'm not a baseball guy. Of course I am. I love baseball. Uh, but if you were to stick me in any other sport, I would build the same relationship. So I'm in the people business, no different than anyone else in any other profession. Mine just happens to be seen by a lot of more people uh, because of the exposure we have on television and the Sally splash and all that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, I'm the guy that that is down there. I'm the guy that's in the middle of it. I'm the one that is closest on our broadcast to the players based on the responsibilities that I have. And so what I learned over the years, and I don't know that this is something I had figured out when I got here. I got here in 08 and had already been in the television business since 1994. I didn't really start figuring the relationship part out until I'd say my last year in St. Louis. But the key to doing this is not befriending these guys, especially now as I get older and they're half my age, uh, a little easier to hang with them a little bit when I was younger. But I also always understood that there is a fraternity and a camaraderie between major league players or minor league players that I don't belong in and can't be in. Uh, in the same way, they're not going to come and hang out in their TV truck. You, you, you know, I mean, occasionally you get someone that's curious, but so I've always tried to respect them, but I think that, that that's what gets to the point here is that when you can when you can give anyone in any profession, but certainly these you know high-paid athletes that are under the under the microscope and under pressure, when you can give them the space they want, when you can give them the respect you want, and when you go about treating them fairly on a cons- in a consistent way, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. It's the same discussion as the culture topic. Uh, and, and, you know, culture to me, 
is something that you never stop paying attention to. You don't finally check a box and have it all figured out. Once you have it figured out, you keep working on it over and over again. And so for me, and it's not difficult, you, you never take a day off in treating people right. And whether that is Zach Granke, who on any given day could be really aloof or sometimes really engaging, or whether that can be uh, Jose Guillen when he was here, who wasn't necessarily always the easiest guy to deal with, but yet he dealt with me for the most part, or whether that's some of the greatest guys that I've ever talked to. And there's a long list of them from the Eric Cosmers to the Nicky Lopez's and a lot of guys in between. You treat them all well. You understand that they're all different. So what works in connecting with one guy might be different than the other. Gerard Dyson would let you have it because he was the he was the jester in that in that room. He ran that room. He ran it this past year. He ran it back when he was here uh, after he established himself. And so there had to be a respect factor there and an understanding of when to give it back. So they're all a little bit different. Uh, uh, Whit Merrifield is available to the media every single day. Uh, Alex Gordon, people assumed wasn't. But he was, but you had to know how to do it on his terms. So a lot of media felt like Alex, who's pretty quiet, was was not, I don't want to use the word media friendly because no one ever said anything bad about Alex, but he wasn't anyone's go-to guy. He was one of my greatest go-to guys, but I always knew that it had to be on his terms because he was so routine oriented. I'll see this Escobar never said no to an interview and enjoyed getting better with his English and working on it. I see this basketball was available 24-7, at least once he came to the clubhouse. He was always the last one to get there. He's the kind of guy that could show up at 6 o'clock and put on a uniform. He wasn't doing that. But you understood that his routine wasn't as detailed as Alex Gordon's. And so you had to it, – it's one of my favorite expressions, and I actually speak to groups about this. You have to read the room. And if you do that consistently – and if you treat people right, and, and by the way, I, I tell these guys all the time, and you know, and I, I'm not, when's the last time you heard me slam someone or rip someone? Uh, it's not my style. Um, you want that? Go on to social media. You want that? Listen to some talk radio or, you know, or sometimes read the newspaper. And that's fine. There's a place for that. But it's not my style. It never has been. So I always tell the guys, look, if you're 0 for 20, you're 0 for 20. Like, I've got no problem going on the air and saying this team is not playing well right now. They've got to turn this around. I'm not saying anything that they don't believe or know is true. And if they don't know that's true, then they probably need to look in the mirror. Um, there are ways to talk about the, the negatives in my role without burying someone. And so I think when you're consistent in the way you treat people uh, and, and, and I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this final point to it, that what I found over the years as the guys are getting younger and also adding COVID, I'm not spending time around guys. I mean, I'm first meeting Andrew Benintendi once we start getting field access last year, six weeks into the season or whatever it was, eight weeks into the season. I've interviewed him on Zoom calls, but yet I've never met him face-to-face. -face. So you have to rely on the Whit Merrifields. You have to rely before that on the Eric Cosmers. You have to rely. I mean, I remember once, so like if we have a new player that's Spanish-speaking, whether they don't speak any English or a little bit of English, I'll usually go and introduce myself to them at spring training or the first chance I get and make sure that someone like Kelvin Herrera is standing next to them. And I'll usually do something like this. Hey, I'm Joel. I'm blah, blah, blah. I do this. Uh, nice to meet you. Um, you know, Kelvin could talk about me. He'll, he'll say, stay away from me. He's bad, you know, bad guy. And Kelvin, no, 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 he's good. He's a good guy and all that. Let those guys tell each other what I am or what I'm not. And, and if I've treated everybody fairly and the right way and consistently, that'll pass itself on where, where now these young guys come up and they go, oh, yeah, we know you. Now I'm the old guy, but we know you, and, and we've been watching you for a bunch of years and blah, blah, blah. I'm glad you brought up the COVID piece of that because in the relationship business, like you said, I cannot imagine the difficulties that COVID put on you guys. And specifically, I think where everybody sees it is with like Rex and Ryan in the broadcast booth. Mm -hmm. Pop fly mid left field and off the bat, it's there's a little more excitement than you would ever get when Rex and Ryan are behind home plate at the game because that you know for for anybody listening who maybe doesn't understand they they weren't allowed to travel and did they get to go to road games there at the end of the year last year? Nope. They, they didn't nope. go to any road games. So if you were watching the broadcast and you're like, oh man, Rex sounded way more excited than I thought he'd be for a pop up to center field. It is almost impossible 
to call a game from TV, I can imagine. I, it, it may not be as obvious in, in your role, um, but how, can you speak at all to, A, the job that Ryan and Rex and the guys calling the games must have been doing, and B, like you said, A, the job's hard enough. If the team's lost, I think they, they lost, like it was like 11 in a row at one point. If they've lost seven, eight, nine games in a row, the message every night is probably like beating a dead horse at times. And you can't get in there and talk to the guys, specifically when they're on the road. So, I mean, that's difficult. But I can't also imagine trying to call a game, get a feel for it from watching it on TV either. Yeah. Two totally different things here. I think in in the case of, uh, of Ryan and HUD or Fizz and HUD, they're having to do the impossible of call call a game on a monitor. I, I called one spring training game from a monitor, and that was that was extremely difficult. Plus, I don't call a lot of games. Uh, but what I was most proud of in terms of them, all three of them, was you never heard them complain about it. They just did it, which is the ultimate sign of a professional. Because, you know, we always had this thought in TV, at least it's the way that I was taught, and I think radio too, is that nothing's ever going to go exactly to plan. Radio, you can kind of fudge it a little bit more because they don't see it, then you know you might not be as exposed. But in television, you see everything. But not every mistake needs to be highlighted. You know, and one of to me, one of the biggest um, taboos in television, and every now and then you can get your frustration and you'll say it, is to show that you're frustrated or to mention that something didn't go right. For the most part, people sitting at home don't even know. Now, they could have complained a lot of the times about, oh, well, we don't have this. Well, we don't have that. You never heard it. It was the difference is, is that, that during COVID calling a game off of a monitor, you could see it more. You could see that they were tricked. What looked like a home run ended up being a pop-up to the shortstop, you know, in, in, in shallow left center field. I think people understood that. I think people understood that this is where we were at, just as nothing is the same in COVID right now. So we live with it. But I, I just was so impressed with the fact that they never used it as an excuse. They never complained. That the, the best compliment that I've heard the last two years, I remember talking to Gene Watson a couple of years ago before he left for the Angels and before he came back from the Angels. And he said, you guys are doing a great job when we're sitting here watching at home, we would have no idea for these road games that you're sitting at Kauffman Stadium. And and the reason why they didn't have any, for the most part, the idea was because we didn't draw attention to it. We weren't trying to trick anybody, but let's not make that the focus. That was a mandate that came from, from the network and our bosses and the organization, and they were right. Now, the other side to it, Alex, is what I do became a lot more difficult because if I have this relationship with the players – and I have access to all these players, and I know that I can get into the clubhouse or see them in batting practice and get something every single day. I lost that. So I travel with the team, too. We have not traveled since 2019. And what I had to now decide was this. When do I call or text a player, which, by the way, was also home games because we weren't allowed on the field for 2020 for that 60-game season. When do I call a player or text a player? When's the right time? Like 2020, I would text Alex Gordon. Hey, I wanted to ask you about a couple of things. When do you have time? Call me at uh, one o'clock when I'm on my way to the ballpark. Hey, Whit, I, you got a second? I wanted to ask you about, sure, what's up? Uh, can you talk? Yeah, I'm, I got to go out for BP, but call, like, I can't see what they're doing. And the last thing you want to do is be the guy that every time they see that you're calling or texting, like, oh, again? So, you know, I, I think when you're younger and certainly for fans and certainly as a younger broadcaster for me, it was like, hey, this is cool. I, someone texted me back. And, but then you get to a point where you're like, I got a job to do here. And uh, I, I, I want to make sure they respond to my texts. And so I have to pick spots. And there were a lot of days where in the past, my producer would say in-game reports, he, would, he always says, what do you got for me today? Occasionally they'll say, hey, can you get an update on so-and-so's hamstring injury and make that one of your stories? Sure. For the most part, they give me the freedom to say, what do you got? 
and I'll list off two or three or sometimes four things and they might pick or say, nah, I don't like that one. But there were a lot of days in 2020 and 21 where they'd say, what do you got? And I'm like, I only got one thing, but I'll come up with something else. And they'd be like, no problem. Like they understood that I just couldn't do it the same way. And I wasn't going to burn bridges to do it. But my, my favorite story involving this was in 2020, late in the year, the Royals were playing at the Brewers. I think it was a September game, if I remember correctly. And I just remember I'm sitting at home thinking, what, what, what am I going to do for tonight? And I remember thinking, you know, Ryan O'Hearn is always talking about the Packers. Why is that again? So I texted him. I'm like, Ryan, I had a quick question. Do you have a second? He goes, um, I got to go into a meeting, but I can call you back in 10 minutes. Great. Calls me back. I said, what's the story with that? He goes, well, my dad grew up in, in Milwaukee. He was actually a vendor at County Stadium for Brewers games when he was a kid. I said, that's awesome. And he said, yes, yeah, so we go up to, to Green Bay every single year for one game. Um, I've got all his family up there, all of his brothers, my uncles, all this type of stuff. And um, really bummed out because they all want to come to the game tonight and nobody can come. And my dad can't fly in from, um, I was going to say Texas, but I think his, his parents live in uh, Arizona now. Um, so I said, hey, do you have a picture of you and your dad at – at Lambeau, he said, sure, I'll text it to you. So he texted it to me. So I did the report that night. So I felt like I had something that nobody had. Again, that's my role, right? Provide a little uh, character, uh, you know, learn about these guys. And about 1130 that night, unsolicited, O'Hearn texts me back. And he says, hey, my parents were watching the game. And my mom says that that my dad cannot stop smiling. He was so giddy to, to get the shout out and the mention. Thanks so much for doing that. And I was like, Wow, that's pretty cool. And that's what happened during COVID as I suddenly started reaching out to the families more. You know, if I, they're, they can't be in the stadiums in 2020. They can't be there in person to watch their kid make his debut. So let me, let me get some childhood. I mean, Brady Singer's mom would send me pictures of him pitching when he was six years old, eight years old. And now suddenly you dig in that way. So there, I always say the show goes on. As long as there's a game, the show goes on. Uh, it didn't for a little bit. As long as that game's going on, we have a job to do. That's awesome. I think the the ability to go back, because I, I, one of my favorite things that you guys do on the broadcast, actually, ironically you bring that up, is when guys are making their debut or back when they were having dad's weekend and the parents are in the stands and you go out in the middle of the game, go out, find the parents, interview them kind of mid-game. It's one of my favorite things you guys do on the broadcast. And I don't know, like, Obviously, we can't. You can't do that all the time. Where there's constant like mid-game interviews with like yep. fans in the stands and parents and stuff. But it is one of my favorite little segments of the game that that is ever done on a broadcast. Doesn't matter like who's doing it, whose parents, who they're being. Like, how do we know this guy? It doesn't matter because those are the best. Hearing those stories of like Danny Duffy's mom catching his yep. bullpens when he's growing up. I mean, those are that is some of the best baseball media on the broadcasts ever. And so I love that you guys do that. I love how that kind of developed over COVID, like you said, and, and, you know, acknowledging that that makes the job more difficult sometimes and it can be but it's, a challenge, but it is, it's, it's awesome to get those stories. It's the best part. It's yeah. the best part. And here's the reason. Every now and then I'll see some people on. So let's stick to the game, blah, 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 blah. It's like, look, we're in the storytelling business and you're right in the sense that, you can't do them all the time because, you know, ultimately we do have to pay attention to the game. Uh, you know, sometimes if a game's out of hand one way or another, it, it's a nice distraction. Uh, but th these are normal people. I think I've heard Ryan Lefebvre say before, they're normal guys living extraordinary circumstances. But the one thing I think all of us can relate to, you know, if, if we're parents or, you know, think about your own parents is and especially for baseball fans we probably dreamed of being in their shoes we, we probably dreamed of, of hitting that walk-off home run in game seven we, we dreamed of being on the mound we dreamed of celebrating all this type of stuff and most of us never got there we'll never get there but we can understand the feeling that a parent has and, and I've been so damn fortunate to be able to interview I mean we still to this day just laugh and have a good time about Eric Scoglin's ovation and the tipping of the cap and waving it around. And 
I mean, I'm telling you, his dad was more nervous than any dad I've ever seen before. And to be able to interview your Donald Ventura's mom, who spoke zero English, but it's one of my favorite lines of all time. And at least in my memory, this is how it went. We're down in the Crown Club and there's a translator with us. I think it was Betty Cagle. And, and I said to her something like, what is it like to have a son, you know, grow up in the Dominican and make it to the big leagues throwing 100 miles an hour? And the translation goes back to her and this look shoots across her face and she's glaring at me now. I'm like, what, what did I do wrong? I just asked what it's like to have a son that's throwing 100 miles an hour. And the translation comes back after she speaks in Spanish, 102. Like, sorry about that. But those moments are the greatest. And, and, and you know what's cool too, Alex, is that in recent years, you know, 2000, pre-pandemic, so, you know, 17, 18, 19, you see these dads come on the dad's trip, which is the coolest thing. Cause like we're all spoiled flying on the charter and the nice hotels. And I tell people all the time, it's as good as you think it is, but it's not for us. We're just caught in the middle of it. So put your head down. It's not about me on a plane. It's not about like, I don't go hang out with the guys. I find my seat. I watch my movie, you know, I get something to eat, uh, have a drink and that's it. Right. And, but to watch these dads come onto the plane and see this for the first time, they're as wide-eyed as their kid had to have been when they were rookies. The difference is a rookie's not supposed to show it. You got to act cool. You, you got to act like you've been there. The dads don't have that in them unless, you know, I mean, like Whit Merrifield's dad, you know, was a professional ball player. I'm sure Bobby Whit Jr.'s dad is going to be just fine. But for the most part, you could see it. And one of the coolest things a few years back was to start to hear Danny Duffy's dad say to me at these events, you know, because they, they, they'd roll out the red carpet with these – extravagant meals at the hotel and taking care of every little detail that gets back to the culture again uh, for these dads to make it the most memorable trips ever. Um, and everyone can understand that, right? I mean, if you're again, a parent um, or a son uh, or a daughter, uh, think about giving your, you know, your father, the ultimate experience. And Danny Duffy's dad said to me, he goes, this is, I'm feeling a lot older now. But this is really cool to watch these younger dads experience this because I remember what it was like. So, you know, I, I'll get back to something I said before. Like, I've got this shotgun seat for all this stuff. That's the best part of the job. I, I always say, and I, I say it over and over again, that, that what you were talking about, the, the big league debut and interviewing the parents or seeing the parents, it never gets old. I, I never played athletics at a level that would warrant any discussion about me being at a next level uh, my you know my kids won't but I've been through that experience so many times that I know what it's like you know I sat there at Yankee Stadium with Eric Hosmer's parents the night that he hit his first home run I wasn't sitting with them when he hit the home run but I was interviewing them up there in the upper deck or the mezzanine at Yankee Stadium I could list countless I mean I, I went in and um, introduced myself to Jonathan Heasley's parents before he made his big league debut and, and they were like kids in a candy store. And then they hear the story about how his, you know, his, his, his wife and their newlyweds within the last year had had arrived, but she was going to be just last minute because she got to the, the airport and told them, take me to the Lowe's hotel. And the cab driver took her to Lowe's, the store, you know, not the hotel, the store. Like she somehow with all of her luggage needed to go pick up some supplies to build something. I don't know. Um, there are countless and never ending stories like that, that are just part of something that each one of these families will tell for generations. And I get to tell part of those stories and share them with fans. It's, it's the greatest thing. That's awesome. That is like I said, it's legitimately one of my favorite things about baseball is that, is that moment. You know, I'm glad you guys you guys do such a good job of covering it, and that you know, I'm I'm glad that gets to be part of it because that's it's what so a, much fun. What about the game's fire story last year? That's one of my favorite stories of all time. You remember that, right? I don't know that uh, I know specifically what you're talking about with Gabe's. Fire. Oh my gosh! Okay, it's good because I mean, you know, obviously Gabe's not a major name, although boy, he pitched awfully well last year, and then you saw what he was doing in in AAA. But you know, here's this kid that has. What, 15 games under his belt over a couple of years. He's, he's off the 40 man and they call him up. And, and, and if my details are off, it's not by much, but, but it's September 
they add him to the 40 man because right around 5:30 or so uh, on this afternoon Wade Davis after playing catch guys go play catch every day to see how things are feeling something didn't feel right so they put him on the injured list and so they they run into Gabe Spire in Omaha and, and it was one of those nights where the Royals had used everyone in the bullpen the night before so they were short of course and you know we don't Rosters weren't expanding the way they used to anymore, right? The roster was up to, what, 28 or whatever it was, not 40 or 35 or whatever. So they go into the clubhouse and tell Gabe, hey, you're getting called up. Wade Davis is going on the IL. They need you there as quickly as possible. It's 620 at night. He calls his wife. And again, if my times or details are a little bit off, it's not by much. He calls his wife, who is in their apartment, two blocks, three blocks away from the stadium in, in uh, Omaha and says, uh, I just got the call. I'll pack up the place, grab the dog. We got to go. Like they need me there as quickly as possible. And so she picks him up and they're, I never found out a speed, but they're racing down I-29 and he's driving. She's navigating. They're listening to the game, keeping up on it. It's against the Oakland A's. And he hasn't eaten. You know, he's probably going to eat like at 6.30, 6.40. Well, now he's racing to get there because they might really badly need him. And he says that he is stretching as he's getting close in the car. And they pull into the stadium like at, at like 9.30. I'd have to go back and look at my notes. 9.30, 9.40, something like that. He walks in. He gets into the clubhouse, and I think it was Chris Bubich comes up, and he goes, dude, you got to hurry up. Like, they need you right now. And, and, and Gabe told me the next day, he said, uh, he was telling me and Andy Rogers from MLB, he said, I, I thought he was messing with me. So I throw my stuff on, and I run down, and there's a rule that you always have to say hi to Mike Matheny, you know, first thing you do. So I run up, and he said, hey, Mike, I just want to say hi. Blah, blah, blah. And I, we don't have time for that. You got to get out there and warm up. He runs out there to the bullpen. He warms up, and 10 minutes later, he's in the game facing Matt Olson, who's fifth in the league in home runs, and he strikes him out. That's his return to the big leagues. Because I and was oh, by I, the, I, If I didn't no. watch the game, like I was following, because I mean, with being minor league centric over at Royals Farm Report, we, yeah. I mean, I've been following Gabe for a while. So I mean, I was very aware when he made his debut. I have no and idea quickly. how I missed the story. Well, it happened quickly. You know, I mean, he wasn't even supposed to be there that night. Now, the kicker to the story is this. Um, his wife is trying to walk into the stadium with the dog. And they go, well, man, you don't have a ticket. You can't let a dog in. You can't let a dog in here. It wasn't Park at the Park. And she, I think the dog's name is Dax, if I remember correctly. Big, like, golden doodle or something like that. And um, he says, or she says, um, I feel like her name's Megan, but I might be wrong on that. But anyway, um, she says, my husband's about to go on the mound and pitch right now. Can you just let me in? We, I just dropped him off, and they said, fine. So she watched him strike out Matt Olson sitting somewhere in the stadium with, with their dog, and that was his return to the big leagues. That is incredible. That yeah. is – I don't know that I've ever heard that story. I don't know how I yeah. missed that. I mean, that, yeah. is, that is incredible. That is yeah. absolutely incredible. I can't it's, – it's, it's one of my favorite – it's one of my favorite stories – in all the thousands of stories I've told, it, it's it's got to be a top ten story, if not more. I mean, it's just, I, I mean, it still would have been an interesting story if he gave up a home run there. But, yes. but he struck the dude out. You know, I mean, he was taking off the forty man roster, and you saw the year that he had last year. He very much deserved and warranted that call up. Um, you know, there's and this is where like when you know I'm doing the motivational speaking and I'm talking to groups, the message. And I think I told that group to, uh, or I told that story to a group of bankers um, uh, on the other side of the state, um, about an hour outside of St. Louis in October. And the message to the group was, "You never know when it's your turn." Like none of us do. I mean, I, I, at any given moment, somebody may need you in a pinch for something. Are you ready? And he was ready that night. I mean, it's it's, it's truly remarkable. That is incredible. I that is one of my new favorite ever call-up stories and there are there are some good ones but that that might take a take that might be the best like in terms of getting there and literally walking in to go warm up that is incredible yeah. Yeah. um 
Joel, I really appreciate your time tonight. I don't want to keep you forever, although I think I could probably talk to you for the next couple hours. <laughs> um, I would be remiss. In fact, I might get fired if I didn't ask you about the Salvi splash. I was thinking about this, and I feel like on the broadcast they've mentioned before something to do with your dry cleaning. <laughs> the Royals won 97 or 96, something like that, games back in 2015. And I feel like – if I mean, there was probably – as many salvy splashes on the nights that you absolutely get drenched. What, I mean, how many suits do you have in the closet? And just, I mean, how, how much fun is it to be a part of that? I mean, I'm sure it gets annoying at some point, but how much fun is it to be a part of that? How many suits do you have to be ready to roll every day, every night? You know what? As we're recording this today, I just got two new coats. So that's always exciting. Cause you know, you gotta, you gotta keep the repertoire good. I mean, I always feel like I, I, I I always feel like Jeff Montgomery is one of the one of the best dressed guys, so I've got to be able to hang with him a little bit. But a um, couple things with this one, I don't think I've ever ruined a suit. I can't say whether the the life of a suit is less because of these splashes. I, I I would think the champagne probably does worse. By the way, I've always been a guy because I had a lot of experience in St. Louis, and then obviously fourteen and fifteen round after round of champagne. You'll never see me with goggles on. You'll never see me wearing an overcoat or, a, you know, a raincoat or something like that. Not a knock on anybody else. Got to tough it up. But it's the same thing with the Salvi Splash. Other than I will move to get out of the way if at all possible. As you know, and everybody listening knows, I don't always have that choice. And I always tell people that these guys are bigger. They're younger. They're more athletic than me. I'm not going to win the fight if they want me to stay. So if Salvador Perez puts me in a bear hug or anyone for that matter, I'm not going anywhere. I always say it's Salvi's show. It's Salvi's world. We're all just living in it. I just happen to be the guy that is closest to that moment. And it is a moment as silly as it seems. And I don't want to say that it ever bothered me. But, you know, there were the early stretches of the Salvi splash, by the way. And, and he doesn't remember it either. But the first ever Salvi splash was not from Salvi, meaning the first ever Gatorade bucket dump that I remember actually came. I don't know who the, who I was interviewing, but Alex Gordon dumped the Gatorade bucket. And the only reason why I know it is that we left after whoever we were playing that night to fly to St. Louis, thankfully a sh short trip. And it was Gatorade. And I could feel the back of my neck anytime I moved my head around sitting on the plane sticking to itself. And like right as we got on the plane and then, and then Gordo gets on the plane and he would sit like three rows behind me on the other side. And he looks at me, he goes with this wry kind of grin. Did I get you? I'm like, yeah, you did. Uh, that was the first one. Then obviously it became an institution with Salvi secret here for the most part, for the most part, Salvi's really good at making it water, not Gatorade. Um, there were some times, uh, by the way, only one catcher or one player ever, offered to pay for my dry cleaning, not a knock on Salvi, but it was Drew Butera because he came up once, I believe it was from the bullpen and he brought the bucket from the damn bullpen and he, and, and it was a sneak attack and he felt bad the next day. And he said, let me pay for your dry cleaning. Uh, the moral of the story here um, or the kicker is that for the last five years, and, and I'm sure you don't mind me putting in a plug. They don't ask for it. Is that a, a, um, uh, a dry cleaners here in town called hangers, dry cleaners, they take care of my dry cleaning. So they, they, they get it all out. And so everybody always says, how many suits have you ruined? I don't think any. And how, how ridiculous, how expensive is your dry cleaning bill? It's not. I don't have to pay for it, thankfully, which is, which is awesome on their part. But, but the last thing I would say to you, Alex, is this. People say to me, boy, is it cold? Like, well, yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't look warm, does it? Well, do you like it? And my response is always this. Um, would I choose to stand underneath the Gatorade bucket? No. Do I like it? Depends on how hot it is. But how cool is that, that I get to be a part of something that brings joy to people here in Canada? I, I, hopefully that doesn't sound too melodramatic. But like there are nights where I look up in the stands and people stay just to watch that. Now, I may ask the greatest or worst question ever, and as long as it's not with a fake Guy Fieri, there, I'll throw myself under the bus there. Um, there, 
I don't know if people care about so much what I ask, and, and I take a lot of pride in the questions and what I do. What they remember more than anything else is that salvi splash because it's personality. They feel like they're a part of it. It's fun. It's, 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 it's adults acting like kids. And so I get to be the guy, you know, and I, I have never asked Salvi to do it. I have never coordinated it, coordinating any, anything. I always say that if any one of these win an Emmy, we should put Salvador Perez on the credits because he might as well get a director's credit because he's telling me where to move and he's signaling to me like, hey, move that, turn around there. And, and if I don't listen to him, he gets pissed off. That's for sure in a fun loving way. But like how unique and cool is that? That, um, that I get to be a part of that and people know me for this silly little thing that brings a lot of people happiness. And so, um, and the young guys that don't know it's coming, so easy. I mean, I'm an accomplice. Uh, the older guys, they just, that actually gets distracting because they're looking over their shoulder the whole time. Like, dude, can you look, eyes here, come on, let's, let's focus. And, and then it's just a matter of, is it going to be me or is it going to be them? Uh, and then, oh, by the way, you better get upstairs to do that post-game show. And um, sometimes it's cold, but, you know, it, it's pretty damn fun. It is absolutely something people stay and watch. And I think it is one of the most unique. Like, I was trying to think. I was, like, actually searching around back in, like, 2015. If any other teams had something similar, like a really weird rallying mm. cry or whatever. And I know, like, was it the A's maybe who were doing, like, the, sh- the shaving cream pies? And, like, there was yeah. – there were a couple examples of it, but so back in 2015, long story short, I was driving back and forth between Warrensburg going to college to some of those games. And literally I'd be, you know, it'd be the, it'd be the ninth inning or whatever. And I'm like, I got to If I can get a head start on this, Wade Davis is coming in. This game's over. If I can get a head start to the parking lot, I can get back to Warrensburg, get to bed. And I'd find myself like dragging my feet to the gate to see the Salvi splash and the stadium did not empty until that splash came down. Now, in a stadium of 30,000, there might only be 20,000 left, but it was definitely over half full every single time. And from, you know, a fan watching watching you get to be a part of it, that's something that's going to go down when if you ask, you know, any high school age, college age kid, elementary school, heck, what they remember about those teams. It's going to be, you know, the team, but then it's going to be I remember all the Salvi splashes every single time they win. And it's, I mean, I'm, yeah. I imagine it's pretty cool to, to get to be like, like you said, like in the shotgun seat of all that that's happening. Um, but it, I mean, it's, it's one of the coolest things I think from that run. That's just like, I don't know, like this, like the sideshow, I guess. Well, and, and I think like, I don't know, you know, you just got me thinking right now that, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, when we look back at, that 2014, 15, that, that run. And I always say that run was more than two years because they fell short in 16, 17, 18, but it's not like, you know, they, they were, they were still part of the discussion, right? It was still that same group. And so you're talking really about a, you know, five, six year run where that group and those shenanigans were, were, were part of it. And again, I, I really always want to say it's not, it, it shouldn't be about me. I think that, you know, of all of us broadcasters, the only one that maybe should be about a little bit more is Rex because of his personality, right? I mean, there, there, there's no other Rex Hudler in the world. And, and so he provides a lot of that entertainment. But to, to be the guy that's associated with the Salvi Splash, you know, if you ask somebody Salvi Splash, name one name, they would say Salvador Perez. If you said name another name, they'd probably say me because, you know, I've been in as many Salvi Splashes as Salvi's been in. In some ways, more because when he was hurt, other guys sometimes would do it. But I, I, I will. So, like 30, 40 years from now, they're going to think, remember that Salvi splash? And, and I was a part of that, which is not anything I ever signed up for. I mean, Alex, they, one year, Hosmer and Salvi, I don't know, remember which one I had, or maybe I had somebody else and the two of them came out with a Gatorade bucket. I don't remember. It was my birthday. The two of them grabbed the microphone from me and had the whole crowd sing happy birthday to me. Like, are you kidding me? That this isn't supposed to be about me. So, and I have the coolest pictures, you know, I mean, all the photographers, the Kansas City Star and AP and all those, you know, men and women, they know that an action shot is coming. Like, 
it, it, it Jason Han of the Royals, they got so many pictures that my phone and, and, you know, is loaded with like the coolest action shots of, you know, me and Salvi or me and Duffy or me and Moose or me and Haas and all this type of stuff. So yeah, it's uncomfortable, but it's fun. Uh, one other one I'll tell you, cause you've never heard this one, but I, I love sharing this one is if you were to ask Salvi, if you were having, have him on right now, he would say, it'd be one of the first things he said about this. If I was with him, Oh, Joel, Joel always complains about, about getting wet and it's too much, which I never complain. And I go, I do not always complain. And he goes, you did twice. I go once. He goes twice ago. You name me the, you name me the other time in Seattle and he can't name it. So once I don't remember the year. It was probably pre 2015. We're in Seattle and I don't know who I'm interviewing. I can always picture like where I'm at, you know, third base side standing there. And instead of bringing out the bucket, I don't know if he was lazy or it was empty or what he took like four cups from the dugout and did, did the air attack, the long distance air attack. They were, I think it was blue Gatorade. So now you're not dodging a bucket. You're, you're dodging drops that are flying everywhere. And it was like the first game of an 11 game road trip. And I'm wearing like a white shirt or a light coat or something like that. And now I am just covered in blue. And, and, and I got the rest of Seattle and two more cities to go. And so all I said to the next day to Mike Swanson was, hey, would you ask Salvi at least just to do the bucket and not the cups because it totally messed up my coat. And now I'm, you know, now I'm screwed. I got to figure out when I can get the dry cleaning because the schedule is not. And I'm telling you, Salvi to this day lets me have, oh, you can't handle this. Oh, Joel's always complaining about blah, blah, blah. It was once out of hundreds of them. It was once, but that's his, that's his leverage on me. And as you might expect, um, he and I have that relationship where we, we give each other, this guy gives me more crap every single day. And I love throwing it back at him. You know, if I don't talk to him for a day, he yells at me for not talking to him. If I talk to him two days in a row, he yells at me talking to him too much. Um, he's as much fun as people would think. That's outstanding. He is obviously a, a town, a fan and a game favorite for a reason. Um, but I, it is, it's cool. Um, yeah. To, to get to be a part of that, even like you said, yeah. even if it's from a shotgun. Literally. Yeah. Literally. Very, very cool. Um, Joel, thank you for your time. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I know for a fact our listeners are going to enjoy this. So thank you very much for coming on. Um, good luck to you this season. Hopefully you get a little more of that access. Hopefully they'll let you be on road trips. I know with the yeah. with, with things as they're evolving, probably a little more likely, but um, – Good luck to you. And thank you. Like I said, thank you very much for joining me tonight. I appreciate you having me. And, you know, I wish I had an insight on when all this is going to happen, but whenever it does, we'll, we'll be ready to go. And hopefully it's on the road, but whatever it is, we'll bring it to you. And I would just say in return to you, uh, along with thanks for having me, that, that you guys do a great job. And, and I, you know, I learned this early on from Ryan Lefevre that we don't have the time to spend looking at every prospect. We just don't with our grind and our schedule. Our focus has to be on the big leagues. So you pay attention to a few guys as Hosmer's coming up. You pay attention to Bobby Witt Jr. who falls in that same category of what you said about the culture and the class. I mean, everything out of his mouth is yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And it's, and it's genuine too. But I'll keep an eye on Bobby Witt and Nick Prado, you know, MJ and, you know, may, maybe maybe 10 guys. On a regular basis, but I learn more about these guys because of how much you share on social media. And so when I see you posting about a guy that I probably haven't thought about his name since he was drafted three years ago in the sixth round or the 10th round, it, it's, it's early radar for me. So keep that up because I think that there's, there's obviously a great market for it and, and I'm able to learn from you too. So I, the passion shows and, uh, and I appreciate the work that you and all your people do too. Well, I appreciate that. Thanks for, I remember, um, A, thanks for following me. B, when my son was born, I um, tweeted a picture of the TV and said, getting ready to sit down for the first game of my son. You replied, congratulations or something. And I sent it in a group to the guys I write with. And it was, um, one of my buddies said, you need to print that out and like put it in his baby book or whatever. So that's I, cool. I was, I was thinking about printing that off. So 
thank very you, cool. for, thank you awesome. for your support. Thank you for following. Genuinely appreciate it very much. So um, for everybody listening at home, um, thanks for listening. We'll be back again next week. Hopefully Jeremy will be able to join us again next week. Get my co-host back. But um, Joel, like I said, thank you very much for joining me tonight. Uh, the rescue guys, I will see you all uh, again here in another week. Thanks for listening.